Good afternoon, good evening, good metal. My name's Coop and welcome to the Spoken Metal Show. This this episode is is one of those episodes that I it, I probably intended the show to be when I when it was first kind of the first inception of the show. What I wanted it to be was always to put a spotlight or uh, uh, some kind of highlight uh, to someone within the business that maybe their name wasn't very very famous, but their work most certainly was. Um, you know, one of the many uh, people behind the scenes of of this of some great albums and some great songs and and, and, and artists that that we 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 know and love. And there is as I always talk about, there is a, a vast amount of people that surround these artists. Uh, and kind of in, in the background helping things happen one of the the sort of joys of doing this podcast is that it's it's enabled me to to talk some to some of these people at, at, at length about about really really important albums to to me and really important albums to uh, hopefully you the, the listener and this guest start for this show is the the fantastic mark dodson and that might not be a name that is you know familiar to 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 some um, it's certainly familiar to people within the industry, um, and who hasn't he worked with? I was going to do a list of of albums that he he he's engineered and produced and been involved with, uh, but the list would be r- ridiculously long because he's worked with everybody, uh, from you know Anthrax, uh, you know an Aussie, to you know Prong, Metal Church, you know Udo, Ugly Kid Joe, and and, and Judas Priest, and and it's amazing to kind of talk to him and he's extremely candid about his uh, his involvement and the things that he did and 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 what a superb human being for allowing a little window into uh, there's lots of stories it, it is there's you know i, I mean I, it was difficult and i i even said this while speaking to him not to fanboy about it because he was was on board for some of my favorite judas priest albums for of all time and and it was fascinating to have an insight into how he started and how he kind of moved through the the, the business to where he is now, and uh, you are very much a producer of note, someone that is a, a go to person for, uh, the, for for the industry, and but moreover, he, what a great attitude the, the, the gentleman has, and you know what a great outlook into into music itself, and still very very much excited about music and full of lots of energy for the for the next project and the next thing. So. You know, this is a really. This episode does encapsulate a lot of what I was trying to do. I think this 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 episode's a good, you know, example of where of 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 what what I intended it to to be. And I'm very very grateful for Mark to 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 be available to to sit down and chat. I've had a lot of feedback now, um, and a lot of people talk to me and suggesting artists. So now I've got a, a almost a backlog now of people to talk to, which is a fabulous situation to be in. As the listenership grows almost exponentially, um, it's it's so kind of exploded, uh, if, if I'm honest. And now there's a large amount of people listening. And I'm very very grateful that people do. And hopefully this episode is it feels like well, as we approach the the hundredth episode, this would have made a great hundredth episode because it was it's it's so great. I didn't want to wait too long. I've waited maybe a little bit longer than I should have done with this episode to put it out there. But this is. A real sort of high mark for, for for what I was trying to do, and I hope you enjoy it. And I, I know a lot of people actually do enjoy that, and that and that's great to hear. So I hope you you do enjoy this. I'm sure you will. If you're a fan of music, you will enjoy this. If you're a fan of metal, you will most certainly enjoy this. And if you're a fan of everything from 
priest to suicidal tendencies to the Joe to 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 anthrax and beyond. You really will enjoy this episode, and and please, if you do, share it with people, suggest it to people that they may enjoy it as well. But let's let's listen. No one no one's here to listen to me ever. And um, this is a great sit down with the fantastic Mark Dodson. Ladies and gentlemen, we have. I always say it's a real treat when we speak to to anybody uh, within the business as as respected as my as my next guest. But this really is a treat. It's a treat for. People who want to know kind of what it's like to produce a band and, and engineer bands and that type of thing, but also someone who's worked on albums, ladies and gentlemen, that are recognised classics. Recognised classics. I'll put a list of these albums that this gentleman's been involved in uh, on the on the pod as well. But it is it is my absolute pleasure to welcome Mark Dodson to the show. Mark, how are you? I'm very good, Mark. Very nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, fabulous to uh, to get you on the show. For those that aren't aware, um, Mark is uh, a producer, an engineer, and he's worked on, I would say, some of the most classic metal albums of all time. Um, and we're going to get into all that. I've got a little bit of a this is your life thing I'm ready for you to do as well. But I suppose, I mean, where do we start? What a, Prolific isn't the word. I mean, the, how many albums have you worked on? Could you even know oh, at this oh. point? Over the years, I, I sometimes wonder that um, and try to go through it. And, and then as I do it, all these other albums pop up into my head and I go, oh, yeah, I did that one. Oh, I did that one. Or I was involved in that one. And it's, it's strange because even going way, 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 way back to when it all began, when I started working at the Who's studio in Battersea, a studio called Rample, which was a, a, an incredible place to work. I mean, mm. it was like walking into the TARDIS, walking into that place. <laughs> and, and everybody came there. So, and I was thinking about that. And when I, one of the, one of the things that what I'm trying to say is, I was thinking about this very thing. And then I realized that there was a time when I was working there, someone said, oh, we've got to do an outside recording at this concert. Do you want to come and be like the assistant engineer? And I, I got 12 pounds for it, I remember. And I go, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. And it ended up being Bill Haley at the Hammersmith Palais. Okay. And I was like, you know, I was like, damn, this is Bill Haley. Bill Haley yeah. and the Comets, it's rock around yeah. the clock and stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> I, I remember we were trying to get all the gear off the stage afterwards and all the rockers were throwing pint mugs at us and stuff like that. But I've got my name on a Bill Haley record, so, you know, how bad is that? I, I, I often talk about Bill Haley because people don't realise that when, they were, when Bill Haley was around doing rock around the clock and all that type of thing, yeah. There was damn near riots at the shows, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. it, was, it, was yeah. great, it was a wild time. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't what like you see on the television sometimes with all like okay. suits and everybody's nice and sitting down. No, no, no. It was people throwing chairs and like you say, pint glasses and the rockers. Yeah, we, we were hiding behind the stacks. When we just went out there and suddenly it all kicked off. I'm like, fuck this. And I'm like, hiding behind the stack and it's like, oh. And then I had to, the next day I had to get the cables, try and get the cables down and put it all back. And it was where they used to film Come Dancing. And I'm climbing across this scaffold like 50 feet up in the air. And this cable falls down and hits the, the blinds and everything. And all this dust falls and all the people doing Come Dancing down there practicing. And I just hung the cable back up. I said, listen, man, for fucking 12 quid, I'm not doing this. I could be dead. You know? It's not worth it. Was that the first music you, you were hearing then when you were growing up? Was it kind of rock no. and roll and, and that? No, 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 no. I, I think really when I, what started hearing was when my older brother bought, we used to listen to the blues, a lot of blues stuff, and my older right. brother was a big influence because yeah. of that. And um, 
so we, you know, we grew up obviously listening to the Stones and the Who and the Beatles. And he, you know, I remember him going to his school dance, coming home one night and saying, I just seen the greatest guitar player in the world at his school dance, which was a school called Rutlish in, in Merton. And um, it transpired that it was John Mayles Blues Breakers with Eric Clapton. Yeah. So you go, you go, damn, you know, this Eric Clapton playing the school dance. So, yeah. so there was, it was a lot going on then as well. You know, I was listening to Yes, The Who, um, I loved, the, always loved the Stones, you know, Hendrix, everything was, there was so much going on then. That massive it, blues it, explosion, like, you know, Peter yeah, Green and stuff like that, crazy. and Jeff Beck and all these yeah. fabulous artists around Sam. Yeah. But, but many would say, well, it's true that they laid the groundwork for, you know, for metal and, and, and the heavy rock and that type of thing. They, they, these were the people yeah. that laid the absolute groundwork for it. You know, the blues yeah. is is rooted in, in, in metal and, and rock very Big much. You know? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, Zeppelin, I always like to think of Zeppelin as like a heavy blues band more than anything. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, I don't know how many records, like hundreds, I suppose. <laughs> from, you know, it plays being, after a while. From being an assistant engineer, you know, T-boy, um, <laughs> to, to being, you know, and, and when I was a T-boy working at Rampal, you had to go through an initiation process because the guys there, they didn't part with, I was on eight pound a week, I remember. And I, I remember saying to them, but I'm doing 80 hours a week. And they said, well, that's the gig. You either do it or don't do it. Yeah, and I'm like, yeah. fuck. But then at Christmas, they gave me a hundred pound bonus. I thought I was fucking a multimillionaire. I was down the pub flashing 20 pound notes. <laughs> well, You'd made it. You'd made it. <laughs> yeah, I thought so. I thought so. But during that time, I, you know, when I think about it, it's, it, that place was a book because so much happened out of there. Thin Lizzy came out of there. I did, um, my friend Will Reed Dick did Thin Lizzy and he did Motorhead there. And I was doing Judas Priest and Joan Jett Bad Reputation. Mm. So, you know, those were albums we were working on. Then The Who would come in and they would be working on Tommy. So, or, or maybe Who By Numbers. I worked on Who By Numbers for a bit. So I got to see all of that. You know, I saw Keith mm. Moon drumming with like 20 Tom Toms, literally, and um, Pete Townsend begging. Glyn Johns to put a microphone on the snare drum because Glyn Johns used to only use three microphones to get the sound he got. And so there were all these totally interesting times. But one, <laughs> like for stories, you know, if you like stories, so the, the Who had this the studio there. It was in a road called Thessaly Road. It's a rough area, very rough. And um, they used to have a bar at the end of the studio. So I remember, and you could get a drink, walk down. I was just a tea boy, but I went down and I got a drink. I was coming back with my drink. And um, Townsend was there with his guitar case open and he was jamming and he was jamming with Dave Edmonds from Rockpile and Dave Edmonds had his guitar case open. They were both jamming there and I walked up and I looked at him for a little while and I put my hand in my pocket and I got 2p out and I threw it in Pete Townsend's guitar case and I walked off and he went, you cheeky little cunt. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't fire me. This is why this is why we wanted to speak to Mark because it's going to be you know talk about being around some of the the greatest moments in in, oh. in music history. I mean, there's like three or four names and I mean classic albums that you know changed music. Change that's yeah. not that's not hyperbole. It's it, they changed music. Do you yeah. people forget that one of the roots in to recording was like you say a T boy. And really, yeah. that was an umbrella term for someone who, who just did everything. They would obviously make the tape, but they would run errands and run across yeah. town for bits and pieces for guitars and, you know, yeah. even get even drugs and that type of thing. And they were, you were kind of a utility <laughs> person, weren't you, for everything? When did it go from being that 
which means that you know you, you have to go through a certain amount of initiation before you kind yeah. of accepted it as uh, into the family, if you will. And each studio yeah. has like a family. When did it go from you actually sort of working on a record then? Well, that was interesting because that was the that was always like my biggest issue trying to get from that. I mean, they threw you in at the deep end as far as being you were you were a dog's body making tea, but you were also a tape op. So you you know you put up the microphones, you took care of the tapes, you you know you kept everything clean and blah blah blah, and looked after the artists and that. So I, I was immediately a tape op, which was great because most studios didn't have that, and and I was a inquisitive little fucker and I didn't understand how the board worked or anything and I would ask questions I know the engineers got fed up with me you know and, and there were some great engineers the house engineers was a guy called John Jansen another one called Anton I can't remember his last name but um, then we had all these other engineers like John Punter who did all Roxy Music came through you know and he was doing his stuff so it, it, it took me about then I got like a little opportunity to do a little bit of engineering I remember and it was it was weird because it was Robert Palmer came in and he was doing a TV ad for cat food. And they were doing <laughs> it to the tune. Yeah, and they were doing it to the tune of She Loves You. She's a top cat cat. La 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 la. She loves you. She's a top cat cat. And I'm like, okay. So they said, We want you to make the snare drum sound like Ringo Starr's snare drum. Okay. And I was immediately fucked because I didn't know how to do that. I didn't have a fucking clue. All I knew is I put a microphone on it and see what came through. Anyway. I didn't keep the gig for long and it wasn't really that prestigious a gig and another engineer came in and he knew a bit more and he blagged his way through it and they did it and blah 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 and then I got little you know other people there was some Icelandic people came in to make albums and no one wanted to do it and they were like go on you do that then Mark and I learned my trade working on those kind of records which was great and you know and I went to Iceland and they Actually, the record I made with those guys was the biggest selling album ever in Iceland. So, it, and I'm still friends with those guys to this day. Yeah. So, you know, that was really cool as well. Um, so the transition was very hard to make. And at the same time, Will, who was my, you know, the other tape op, was, was leaping ahead of me. And I was getting like, well, this ain't right. I've got to push harder, push harder. Yeah. So I did and I did and I argued and moaned. And then they, the, they were so great, the guys there, though. They let me go in the studio on a Sunday or whenever, and I like I found a band at the pub and said, do you want to go and record? And they're like, really? And I go, yeah. And I, they let me go in and use the studio and practice. Mm. I had that kind of attitude. So mm. that was great. So that gave me the chance to start learning my trade. And of course, watching other engineers and producers, like I worked with Mutt Lang, I worked with, um, like I said, Glyn Johns, you know, all these great people came through there. Kenny Laguna was, you know, the guy that just did all the Joan Jett stuff and was in Tommy mm -hmm. James and Sean All those guys, Richie Cordell, who wrote Moni Moni, all these people came through there. And I was learning from them a lot of yeah. the time, you know, learning sounds, learning, because you don't know what an equalization unit does until you fuck with it a lot. Yeah, you, yeah. But now, I, you know, if I hear a snare drum, I know exactly what to do to make it yes. sound however I want to make it sound the pretty much. application of it, the, the actual physical thing yeah. of doing it. Yeah. 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 Was yeah. it Was it very much, it, it sounds like it was a real um, open book as well. Like it wasn't that you would go and people were like, right, clear out because this one producer's coming in and he doesn't want you to see how he does his thing. And no. how he, it was, seems like it was really kind of, look, look, look at this and look at that. And it was, that's a yeah. marvellous sort of fertile ground to, to yeah. learn a lot of stuff from there. You must have, I mean. It was great. We don't, you probably don't get that anymore. I imagine there's no. a lot of things where they'll do, 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 you won't have, you'll have almost closed studios where, you, yeah. where it's all walled off, if you will, and you're not allowed to see these things. 
when you were learning uh, or when you were kind of doing, I suppose the golden thing is to uh, to be is say yes to everything. When they go, can you do this? Yes. Can you do that? Yes. And just, yeah. and then you, you get to see, like you say, a band from Iceland. You get to sit, you have to do a drums that you haven't set up before. And you learn all these skills. It really is deep end stuff, isn't it? Oh, yeah. It's incredible. And you're, you're a sponge at that age. And I loved it so much and wanted it so much that, I, you know, I, I, I took everything in. And I'd walked into that studio whilst they were still building it. So I actually helped bang some panels on the wall and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and then I remember I did now, this one guy came in, a guy called Robin Jeffrey Cable, who's a producer engineer. And his claim to fame was he'd done Elton John album with your song on it, you know, and yeah. everybody said, what, how amazing the strings sounded on that. And he came in and he said, well, do you want to engineer this album I'm doing? And I was like, yeah, all right. I don't know what the fuck I was doing. And it was, um, <laughs> It was, um, what's his face, Chris Burr. So it was a Chris Burr album, and I'm not a great Chris Burr fan, don't Far get me wrong. Far Beyond the Castle Walls? Yeah, and all that, and Patricia yeah. the Stripper, and there were a couple of big hits on, on the album that we did. And um, But I learned how Robin Jeffrey Cable had positioned his, his microphones, mm -hmm. you know, and stuff like that. That's how I, I saw that, and... and you also get to know about people. It's because production isn't just about going, do this, do that, do this. You know, you, you not manipulate, it's not the right word, but you've got to guide and steer people. And if they're not wanting to be guided or steered, then you've got to try and accommodate them. Because my job as a producer is to make their dream come true. That's my job. To, so that when they hear their record, they go, fuck, we, we love you. That's great. That makes me feel like I've done a good job. So that that's really important. But you, you get to learn how to deal with people and there's so many huge characters and people in, in what what came and went through Ramport was crazy you know I saw Ginger Baker in there playing with Baker Gervais Simon I actually did wiped a part of his drums once accidentally I didn't go down very well <laughs> he just said oh I fucking know. don't worry I'll do that bit again <laughs> it was half a drum kit so I don't know how he did it again he must have tied one arm behind his back I didn't get to see that um but you know and then joe cocker was there and, and joe cocker actually was the first person to use the studio and he came in there on princess anne's birthday it, the, he was meant to be there at nine the pubs were open to 12 and at 12 30 we opened the door and gospel truth joe cocker went bam fell flat on his face and they dragged him into the control room set up all the gear started recording and at about four in the morning they woke him up and he they said we've got a track for you joe and he got up and he went out and he sang like a fucking bird i was like oh my god you know, and this Joe Cocker with his arms going like this and singing. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Joe fucking Cocker, you know what I mean? Yeah, Joe yeah. Cocker. And then Neil Young came through one time. Yeah. And that was just, that. all that was like, you hear this tune in and, it go, and you hear, <laughs> <laughs> and then a bit more tune in. <laughs> tuning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. But it's, so tuning. when you kind of, we'll, we'll go in the transition from engineering to producing. When you were an engineer then, you would say is someone who kind of does all the kind of, the setup, the semantics of it, like setting up mics, drums, that type of thing. It, it's all the kind of semantics of it, where things go and where things are put. And then, you know, you, you say you, you, you kind of work with that many people. You get to see all the best practices and all the little sneaky tricks and little things that the, these people do. And it seems like you're learning almost at quite a breakneck pace because this is yeah. like, what, 74 was the Krista Berg album, I think, something like that. And you, uh, yeah. yeah, and then – so. You you see in this, uh, and you, it seems like one of the best tricks to, to be able to pull as a producer is to make someone comfortable in the studio. 
yeah. you say about talking about people and dealing with egos yeah. and, and different sorts of, you know, drug habits and craziness yeah. like that. It's, it's kind of marshalling that along yeah. to get it where it needs to be. So yeah. well, one of the things I, I did say I was going to do a little bit of a, this is your life and although this is only audio, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go with this first. Right. So this is, ladies and gentlemen, for those who see, this is a copy of Judas Priest's Sin After Sin. Mm. Now, this was one I think that the listeners will be most one of the most interested ones because was this one of the first times you 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 kind of um, you work with Roger Glover obviously Deep Purple yeah. Yeah. and you work with Judas Priest um, yeah. and that type of thing and you you're still engineering at this point but it, it sounds like you are you know you you're right on Roger's shoulder watching and kind of did you get an awful lot from him because he's a band guy as well as being a producer yeah yeah he, he I didn't. Not, I didn't really get as much from him as I did from probably a lot of other producers that I worked with. As an engineer, it was my job to make sure that it, everybody could hear what they were listening to, that it sounded good. And that, you know, so that, and, and, and back in those days, everybody actually recorded in a room. So you had to get the headphones balanced right and everybody could have what they want. All these little facets to make everybody comfortable to record were imperative. And the fact that you made things sound good. And the one thing that, made things sound good was when people played good so you know you could have six people five people in the room and it sound like shit and you're struggling to make it sound better and when they actually hit what you know what i like to term as as that catalytic moment where they all are in the pocket playing together the sound actually gets better literally because it's got space to breathe and they're all feeding off and it, it, it comes alive and i mean i've seen that happen with the who i had with bow wow wow when we did i want candy stuff like that just moments where you just go fuck that sounds great um so that was very important i didn't get a lot from from roger what originally happened was there was another producer involved and he came in and he had he wanted microphones on every one of simon phillips drums and, and it was going on like that. And it wasn't sure who was going to produce what and do what. All I know is I was in there just trying to do what I could do. And, of course, I got to meet the boys then. And, you know, and Glenn and I are still great, great friends, mm. you know, to this day. And, and like, I love him to pieces. So um, then, then Roger came in and, and he said, get all those fucking mics off. Just put a few mic arounds like this. So that was constantly changing. Mm. Um, and, and, and I was at that time still learning my trade. And it was heavy metal guitar sound is one of the hardest guitar sounds to get in my mind. It's, well, it is it's one of the hardest. It's a very, very, it's, it's a minefield. And especially when you've got people all in the room playing together, you're not going to get great heavy metal guitar sound. That, albeit I didn't really know that then. So I just got, I just mic'd it all up. And I think I adopted a bit of the Glenn Johns deal with the microphones on the drums and a bit of my own, bits and pieces but Roger wasn't I didn't think Roger as I can remember it was like hugely responsible for anything they did or didn't do I think he was more of a, a, a cheerleader kind of guy that made yeah, it yeah. For, for when, when they talk about that album they talk about him kind of just letting the boys get on with it yeah and really kind of just going listen guys you've got the songs you know you know what you're doing I'm just yeah. going to kind of make sure we get to the end here no yeah. never really kind of because that can be, it sounds like the one of the things that can happen with the producer sometimes is they can force their view, view on it rather than what the band's view is on it. And yeah. it sounds like Roger, certainly when they talk about that album, is he was just let them get on with it. And that's why, like yeah. you say, they were really comfortable and, you know, and probably produced their best stuff. Was that the first time you'd worked with, with metal and, and, and a heavier side of, of rock? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, And I, I really didn't know much about it. 
Mm. Did you um, go to? Yeah, you, were you going to live shows as well as this, or did you not have the time? Did yeah, you to... I mean, I'd, I went and saw Priest play live, mm -hmm. and I've been. I went to lots of live shows around that time. You know, a lot again blues shows. Blues. I mean, where I live now is just outside. Wimbledon and there used to be a club here just up the road called um, the Toby Jug and we used to go there and watch people play and then I mean like the Who played there, the Stones played there, the, you know Clapton and we used to go down there and watch bands play growing up but I wasn't really that aware of metal and then it was kind of the, in its infancy I think at that time anyway you know it was very very different and, and not you know it was just like another especially when you got a vocal like Rob Halford all of a sudden singing on a song and you go Whoa, this is trippy, man. And the yeah. music is so intense. And then you've got Simon Phillips, who's an incredible drummer. Yes. And I think he was 18 at the time, Simon. And um, he's still got notes about that album to this day. He knows exactly what we did and who was there and what was going yeah. on. It's amazing. And I spoke to him about a year ago. And he goes, oh, do you remember when this happened and that? And I go, no. And it's like, yeah, we did that and we did this. Like, Damn. <laughs> But yeah. Because um, so, uh, that was a lot of it. That's a lot of extremes to kind of first deal with. A, you've got... It's a heavier sound. Uh, yeah. You know, you've got two guitar players. You've got Glenn yeah. and Ken, and yeah. you've got two guitar players. You've got Rob, who's doing vocals, you know, almost operatic, you know, yeah. almost operatic rate. The range is enormous. Yeah. Oh. And, you know, and that's a large amount of musical real estate to kind of, to, to yeah. manage you, you know, so that... What you mean, don't what the fuck you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you don't let on. And that's, what, that's what's so brilliant. No, you don't. You kind of get on with it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So then... At which point did you start to go? You know what? I, I think I think I could produce. Did you ever think that? I think I could produce an album. I think I can go from engineering and setup to produce yeah. because it's like like seventy eight and, and stolen love. Is it? I think was that the first thing that you produced or who's that by? Uh, I'm trying to think now. I've got some notes and I can't remember who it was by. Do you remember the first album you produced? Um, the full the first full album that I produced, I believe. I believe was with a band called the Iron City House Rockers okay. um, from Pittsburgh. Still, yeah, I think they were from Pittsburgh. And what happened there? I've been working with Ken Laguna. I might have done some little singles here and there, produced right. some bits and pieces. But working with Ken Laguna, and he really helped me a lot. You know, he came to England and was, uh, you know, he was always looking for work basically. And he, we would work with a lot of punk bands like. Um, band called Bethnal and a band called Advertising and some of these other little punk bands that he would bring through and, and we would work on and that's when I, I did Bow Wow Wow with Kenny Laguna but that was later and then of course Kenny came in with Joni and, and he was by that time very friendly with the organisation and they were they helped him financially use the studio and make the record uh, and so that went down and I, I was fortunate enough to get on great with Kenny and, and Richie who's now passed away, sadly. Um, and I, I learned a lot from that. But Kenny knew, Kenny knew a lot of people. And I was always like, you know, I, I, I learned a lot from Kenny. There was things that, I, that he can do that I still wouldn't be able to do. You know, I mean, he's great with vocal harmonies, which is not something that I'm particularly good with. And I admit that. Um, so if I, if I needed vocal harmonies, I'd get someone in. But most bands do all that shit themselves anyway. But um, so that was that. And he was doing Steve Gibbons band and people like that. And I was getting involved with that. And then... He had a friend who worked for MCA and he's like, they're looking for a producer. Do you want to do this record? And I was like, that sounds like a fucking good idea to me. <laughs> <laughs> so I flew in and I met Joe Koscheki from the Iron City House Rockers. 
and we made this record. But I had a lot of influences. I had all the influences of John Punter, the producer engineer from that time as well, who at that point was starting to use drum machines and trigger drum machines, even back then. Mm. And, and, and so I started fucking around with that when I was working with the Iron City House Rockers. And I made that record and, and it came out and everything. And then Joe Gosheki kindly introduced me to Bruce Springsteen, which was nice. And, uh, you know, it was always nice to meet the boss. Um, so I think in answer to your question, I'm sorry, I waffle on, but the, the, in answer <laughs> to your question, I think that, that that was the first full album I produced. I had been to America prior to that, and was, was trying to, and produced a couple of demos for people, literally just going in, banging on people's doors. And that's when I met Dorian and Hernando Courtright. So I was looking for, uh, I was looking for a producer, uh, a manager. And after, after that, I did Metal Church. Yes. Um, and literally yeah. I got Metal Church, I got just literally by walking into a lecture and talking to Michael Alago, um, who's, uh, you know, famous a and guy and an author and an all-round very interesting dude <laughs> bless his heart um and and that led me to do the metal church album that's when i got dorian and hernando involved so and the thing about production is i don't think you you ever stop learning well if you ever did you'd be an asshole but there's certain parts of production now where people call themselves producers and i don't mean that in any nasty way but there's a lot of kids that go to universities and, and brit schools and bim colleges and they say we're studying music music production but they're not they're learning computer operation that's yeah. what they're learning they're not learning record production i'm not saying that they can't make records because they can and they do yeah but they're not in my mind they're learning how to use computer mm. literally that's all they're doing and, and, and i'm to a kid doing that the other day and he said he said to me, so I had to go in the studio and record a snare drum. He said, and I got the snare drum and I got the microphone, but he said, but then I didn't know what to do. And I was like, you didn't know what to do anymore. You're, you're learning record production at a college and you don't know how to put a microphone on a snare drum and make it sound good. He said, you're, kind of, you're running before you can walk, dude. Yeah. You know, you should know how to do that. That's like basic. Mm. Well, so, it's, like, it's like you say, you know, some of them maybe would have benefited from being an engineer first before ooh. they even got to do this. Yeah, or, or, or ancillary so as they are studying this computer operation if you will at the side of it that they are going to a local studio and you know moving the mics around and you know and making the tea if you will you know there's that yeah. whole kind of there's the practical and the theory and it seems to be like you know a lot a lot of the younger producers now are concentrating on the theory side of it and not the practical about what do you do how do you get a great performance from someone and that can't be wrote down you know that can't be that's not something you can kind of read anyway. You've got to actually go and do that. You, uh, you must have had arguments. You must have, you know, you've had, you've gone out drinking with people you've worked with. You've, you know, you've, you've kind of done stuff together and that mm. generates this relationship. And one of the interesting things that I, I find about some of the great producers like yourself and Mutt Lang and people like that is they're known for the sound. They're known for um, a way of working and they're known as a personality. Oh, that person is good to work with. That person yeah. is uh, comfortable to work with, I feel. Because this is people putting down their, you know, in many cases, their life's work, their kind of their most important work and yeah. their whole life. They, they go, this is, this is how I feel. And mm. they want to trust it. And the element of trust is absolutely massive, it sounds like, in, in a production capacity. Um, did, did, you, did you sort of, when you went to work with, like, you know, uh, the Iron City guys, did you make a load of notes and stuff? Did you have any idea? How did you approach the process? Or did you go in and let them play and then decide? What was the process that you went in initially with them? 
Well, with those guys, I, I, I went in and, and we went through the song. We went, ran through the songs. Mm. And I remember, like, working on the arrangements of the songs. That was one thing that I felt I, 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 could, I could do and I had the ability to do because um, when we used to use Ramport and it was free to use, we also had our own little band there. We were called The Pits and we were The Pits. But we, you know, we fucked around and experimented, arranged our own songs, we wrote our own songs. So I knew how to, you know, and I'd always written songs, not that mm. I was a great songwriter. So I had an opinion about product, about the structure of songs. So with the ICA House Rockers, I, would, I went in and, and, and we worked on the arrangements of the songs and got the arrangements right. So I would do a week or two weeks, as with everybody that I worked with, pre-production, um, not with suicidal tendencies because you, you that's a completely different story. You, you know, you can't pre-produce that kind of thing. There's nothing to pre-produce. Yeah. Um, but with these guys, I, I went in there, arranged the songs, and then we went in the studio. So that would be, the, and I would write down the arrangements of the songs once we agreed on them. So by the time I was in the studio, I knew every change, every bit within the song. Um, so much so that, I, you know, if, if the drum fill, I'd heard a drum fill previous to that, because you get a, me a memory with music. You can, you hear sounds and you know exactly where that came from five years ago or from here. And I would go, that's not the drum fill you played in rehearsal, you know. And I would have also recorded it on a, a little ghetto blast. So I'd go, this is the drum fill. You remember that one? i go, oh, yeah, it's fucking wow. great. So, you know, there was all that going on. And all these little strings you're pulling all together to try and get it all in one place. It's almost like a, a baby being born, you know, and you're watching it for nine months trying to get it here, get it there, until it finally gets born and that's the day it gets mastered. Yeah, well, see, like a lot of people listening will be like, I can't remember that drum fill. I can't, and that's why Mark is so special. That's why uh, you have the magic ears where you can yeah. recall, wait a second, that verse wasn't, you didn't play it that way, this way. And that arrangement process seems to be quite critical to the, to the whole thing. It sounds like if you get the foundations right, yeah. then off you go and you can uh, and you can record albums. Great. So I mean, you did an awful lot with Metal Church. So you you must have really got on with those guys. You think you did like the yeah. dark with them and stuff? And uh, you yeah. know, it seems yeah. like it's it was it was it a case of where they were like, Mark gets us, so we're always going to use him now. Was it very much like that? No, not, um, no, no, not really. I think that. Um, Michael Largo put us together and, and we hear off straight away. Mm. Um, they were all young guys out of Seattle, you know, and they knew that I'd worked with Priest and they knew this and they knew that. So they automatically trusted me. Mm. I worked on their songs with them. And when, and I was always of the mindset, if I ask you to try something, go for it, try it. You know, and it doesn't matter if you fuck it up because great things come out of mistakes, but always try, you know, and if you don't like it, just say you don't like it like that and we won't do it that way it's not it's not for me to tell you i'm just trying to help you take it somewhere else. if you do like it then great and if you don't then it's not a problem either so we got on really really well i love those guys and dave wayne had a killer voice and you know we used to party we'd go out drinking after work sure. and stuff like that you know so we we all got on really well and i still speak to craig wells the guitar player mm -hmm. occasionally or you know via this the mediums that are available these days um and then i ended up doing it and then sadly dave died and i ended up doing another album with him called the human factor which another a singer i think his name was mike wells or something like came in and i didn't really i didn't really get on very well with him uh, it, it's just something about him that i didn't didn't ring true so that was more or less the end of that relationship, albeit that, you know, we, there's still a lot of respect between all of us. Because um, you were, uh, that's like, I mean, we're talking like, what, 86 and 87 around around that time. That was like kind of an absolute boom 
Oh, God, for that yeah. style of music. You know, that yeah. was a crazy time, like 85 going into yeah. 90 in the early 90s was was yeah. one of the most formative times for, for rock and, and metal, most definitely, you know, yeah. and, and, and the subject genre. So that must have been, um, that's an exciting time to be around then, to be around. You were around, oh, like, yeah. kind of, you know, Anthrax in 89 and stuff. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, that's a, and that must have been, you know, that must have seemed like a real high point of, of oh that was incredible because those guys were they they were already happening you know and, and i've mm. been off doing um albums in germany with it except and udo and um yeah. i'm just trying to put it all in time slots because i think the wild hearts came after a lot of that stuff uh, right. they're another you know enigma in their own right but, um but with anthrax they're again a band you don't, there's no point doing any pre-production you mm. know because they write the songs the way they write them and that, and that is it you don't you they're not going to change it because you think a little bit's too long or a bit too short. You might be able to snip it out with a knife later if you wanted to. But um, with those guys, it wasn't like that. So working with them when we were in Florida, and I remember going Metallica doing a concert, and we went down to see it. And it was kind of weird because they were both about as big as each other at that point. And when we walked into the stadium, lots of the fans that were watching Metallica came over to say hello to all the guys from Anthrax. So it was kind of a bit weird. And they had to step back because they were taking the attention off of Metallica. So, and Metallica and obviously Metal Church were best of best of friends. And yeah, they yeah. both played at, um, I remember seeing Metal Church said to me, oh, we're doing the marquee in London. And I was like, great. They said, you go. They said we've got a special guest. So I said, great. And it was like, we're not going to tell you who it is. And it ended up being Metallica. So Metallica opened up for Metal Church at the, at the, the, at the marquee in Wardour Street. And that was like, whoa, this is fucking amazing. So yes, you're 100% right. That was when it was, it was kicking off big time, big time. Mm. Yeah, because you, and you, and you were right in the mix. You were right, right there for that. I mean... We you know we yeah. talk about su- 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 suicidal okay. tendencies and, and, and lights, camera revolution. You, you that you produced that album, uh, you know, and that's yeah. that's seen by many as a, a seminal point for that job. Obviously, you know, a crest of a wave. You're kind of flying on here. Did it feel like that recording with suicidal, for example? Did it feel oh, like a real yeah. special moment? It, that, working with suicidal was was one of the highlights of my career. I have to say, I. I mm. I'd heard stuff of theirs. I absolutely loved what they were doing because it was so punky uh, uh, and just unique. And then I flew to California to meet them. And I, <laughs> I walked into this room, no bigger than a garage. And there's like these four guys with bandanas on. And then another guy with bandana comes on and sits down next to me. And they just start playing. Nobody's talking. I'm just like, hi, oh, hi. That's about it. You know, no further than that. And they all look as fucking menacing as all hell. And I'm thinking, what the fuck? And then they start playing. And it's just like this roller coaster of metal. It was, they were tight as fuck. And I was like, damn, this is good. And at the end of each song, no one spoke. They just made a, play a couple of notes from the beginning of the next song. And they would launch into the next song. So I'm sat there for about an hour listening to this stuff. And I'm like, this is ridiculous. It's no vocals, no vocals, no nothing. Yeah. No, I'm, so it transpires that, you know, I wasn't 100% of favor with every single member of the band. I knew who they were. But I didn't next to Mike Newell, and he's just sitting there listening to it all. So we walked out, and then they kind of introduced me to everyone, and they, we got chatting about it all. And, you know, I said to Mike, well, that's fucking roller coaster. It's mad. But Mike put me through some little tests to make sure, because I remember I went out to lunch with Mike, and um, I went to the bathroom. And when I came back, they said, oh, those two girls over there have offered to buy you guys a couple of drinks. And I was like, I'm not interested. I've got, I'm talking to someone here, you know. And I swear to God, in the back of my mind, that Mike Muir set that up to see if I was there just mm. to be part of the Hollywood glitz and fame. And yeah, blah, blah, you're just blah. like there for the rock star lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I, I didn't fall into that trap, and I was, you know, I wasn't interested either. I was interested in 
what they were doing. And then when we went to the studio and started recording, you know, it, it was um, it was difficult because Mike, you don't know what the vocals are going to do. You know, Mike's always writing and changing. And we would go through a song and then we'd go through a song and i go, that song's a bit similar to that song, you know? And I said, but if I cut these guitars out and I can't remember which song it was, I started, I think this might've been on Trip at the Brain and all that stuff back then. So I started, no, it was on Lights Camera, just dropping guitars out and bringing them back in in places. And we rewrote the song around that idea as well. So it didn't sound quite similar to another track on the album. So we changed it. So it was embryonic. It was always changing. And Mike would, might often sing, when it came to do vocals, Mike might often go, say, right, let, let's start at the last chorus mm. or the last verse, because that's where he, he had it. So he would start and we'd work backwards and then we might work forwards again. So we were always moving it around. And then Rocky would come in and do some guitar solos. And, and then I, you know, and he might play six guitar solos and I would take them and, and try and put them together. And I say, look, I've got this from what you did, but what about that and that? And then he'd go, oh, I'll put a bit in there and I'd go, that bit there, you made a mistake. And I remember he said, he said, yeah, I could never make a mistake like that again, though. I said, so we'll keep it, right? And he goes, yeah, okay, we'll keep it. <laughs> see, so some, that was that. Some, some people would see that as, as almost chaos, but obviously you see it as exciting. You know, oh, you, sort of like Mike, his, his vocal style is almost jazz. It's like spoken word. It's kind yeah. of, you know, it's, yeah. you know, and some would, would find it maybe difficult to harness that, but it's, it sounds like you were, you were energized by it and it was an exciting thing where you were like, yeah. this is great. You know, you describe it as being a roller coaster of metal. And that's yeah. like, you know, that, it's, it's interesting that you, you know, do you think that that's probably, you know, one of, one of your most favorite times recording and it's nice that you get that. It's, it's very clear you know, the work that you did with suicidal, that they thought the same too, that they thought that you've got them. Uh, and yeah. that must have been, and like you say, every band must do that to a certain degree. You know, you had the whole thing of um, Bob Rock getting tested by Metallica where they were like, you know, they would ask him stuff. And you, I suppose there's an element of that because it's a relationship. Yeah. And you've got to know what each person is before you yeah. get into this. Some records, I mean, can take months to record. And so you spend a lot of time with these people. It's important you get, for want of a better yeah. way of explaining it, get on the same page, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. You get to understand them and where they're coming from. And that, the thing about the suicidal situation was that it was like being involved with the birth of a baby because there, it, everything, it was like you've got, you're nurturing it every step of the way. You, know? yeah, you, know yeah, yeah. you don't want anything to go wrong. And then when things go right, you go, oh, fuck me, that's great. I remember in, in, when Mike sang Trip at the Brain and there was one point where he just went off on this mad rant. And then I was like, oh, that is fucking amazing. <laughs> just hit it right at the right moment. And I was yeah, like, oh, man, it's so good. Yeah, yeah, you know, and, and we loved it. We all we all loved it. You know, we loved yeah. doing it, and we loved just working together. Everybody was in a good place then. Mm. And it's and it's that and it's like you say, it's at that moment, everybody's in a good place. That's when the great stuff comes out. You know, yeah, that's when those happy accidents where people are free and they go, you know what? And Mike goes, I'm just going to go. In his mind, he's like, I'm comfortable with this guy. Let's just go. And and out comes this amazing stuff. One of the probably the misconceptions that people think produce of of producers maybe is that they want to control and put rules in place and confine someone and in reality what the the great producers like yourself want to do is just provide a a, a situation for something great to happen you know yeah uh, where someone's where someone's comfortable i mean you go all the way to like you know then we get to like persistence of time by anthrax yeah you know and that was a that's a huge record for them um yeah. when you when you work with someone of that level is it difficult to kind of close out the outside influences and, and, and work with the band? Is there always someone kind of coming in and, and whatever and, and saying, no, it should be like this? Did you find record labels would interfere no. and get involved with things or would they just leave no. you to be you? 
they they wouldn't they 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 certainly wouldn't ever have got involved with anything that um anthrax or suicidal did because they just the bands would not tolerate just not, that. wouldn't have it yeah they wouldn't tolerate it. and albeit that you know there may have been a, a quite a hullabaloo going on around you know anthrax and, and particularly there was with ugly kid joe on on america's least wanted you know they nobody came in and told us what to do and what not to do and we we weren't prepared to accept anybody telling us what to mm. do and what not to do i mean i you know i've got a lot of respect for good a and r people but don't i remember working with somebody once and the girl came in a and r lady came in and she said can can i just hear the bass drum one db louder <laughs> really are you fucking serious? You've got your speakers out of phase in your office and you're asking me to put the bass drum up the DB. And everybody, I've everybody suddenly that. becomes an expert on sound mixers, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Said, well they've got nothing else. So they got they have to justify themselves, you know. And mm. so so but it's it's the more I talk about it and the more I start thinking about all the things happened that back in the days of Berserkly Records with Jonathan Richmond and Greg Kinn and Earthquake and the Ruben Ooze, you know, and I worked with all those guys as well. And that was all because of Ken Laguna. And that was all, always, you know, in, very interesting. You know, I can't give away too many. But I do remember we were mixing Jonathan Richmond live um, at Hammersmith Odeon. And Matthew Kaufman owned Zerkley Records. Fantastic guy. Lovely guy. A really interesting character. But he, he's, we, would, we were mixing it live. We, we, we recorded it, but we... We were mixing it, so we all had like a couple of faders to ride. Ken Laguna, me, and, and Mike, uh, and Matthew. When I, <laughs> Matthew said, I'll do the vocal, I'll have the vocal. <laughs> so I gave him the fader with the vocal, but I didn't give him the fader with the vocal. I'll give him another one. <laughs> and we, we mixed it, and the vocal fader stayed where it was. And we mixed it, and Matthew's going, pushing it up, pushing it up. I did great. My performance was great. How was everybody else? Like, yeah, we all did great. Yeah, that's it. That's the one. <laughs> so you, you get little wins. Because people like that. forget that, that, like, when the recording then, when you talk about riding faders, for the uninitiated, a, a fader's that, that sort of control that moves up and down. Yeah, and what I was talking about is that uh, the recording of some things was almost a performance at the desk as well. Oh, yeah. Because you would have, you know, you know 16 and then 32 and what have you. And someone would have to monitor the levels in real time and would yeah. do that. And you know, I can't imagine how some, some of the recordings you made that were so complicated, yeah. uh, the, the, to, it was a performance to go from one end of the song totally. to the other, you know? And, totally. a, and that's, a, that's a lost art. That, that simply doesn't exist anymore, you know? No. But, but in, it, order to, it, in order to do that, you have to be completely invested in the music. You have to completely yeah. know that song, only front to back. Yeah. Yeah, you do. And, and, and by the time you come to mix it, you, you do know that. And, and you work on your moves and everybody knows where the moves are and you've got the board all marked up and you know how far to go and where not to go and when you're meant to push it and when you're not. And, 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 it, and it relates totally to the way people work today in as much as you can see. They see it on the grid. You know, they go, oh, I can see that. I can see that. And you say, well, you can, no, you can hear it. No, I can see it. No, you can fucking hear it. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, I can hear it. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, so yeah, it does. It does become a, a whole performance thing. And it, I remember somebody came in once at the studio, and they, I think it was Supertramp, someone like that. They recorded at Ramport as well, and they put they had thirty two edits in in the mix because they couldn't do it all in one go. Right. And that was kind of the beginning of almost like computers, you know, because that yeah, was, yeah. in effect that was the same idea. Yeah. So, you know, and and you you learn that, and and then 
and then once we got automated automation in for mixes obviously things got a lot easier and more complicated at the same time because depending on the system you were using i mean when we did when we did defense of the faith we mixed it in florida and the system was a system whereby the time code got bounced each time to another track so over a period of time the automation got slower and slower and slower so by the time you got to the end of the mix you had to sort of override a couple of the moves because they were too late now and they'd drop behind so that was you know that had its own issues with it but that also all these things all kind of added to the magic of it when you finally got the it magic of it yeah i mean look the, the listeners now you've just you just thrown out when we were in engineering defense of the of the faith you know and to our listeners that is a seminal record not just in metal in, in music, you know, the whole production of that is is yeah. still a template for a lot of metal bands. You know, how to put two guitars on, record that type type of vocal, record that type of drum style, and um, mm-hmm. you know, and when you when you work on that, and you and you you kind of do you do you go back ever and listen to that record again? And yeah. when was the last time you listened to Defenders of the Faith? Um, I probably listened to it a few months ago and I probably, I remember speaking to Glenn and saying to him, I think I was listening to When the Night Comes Down because oh, I yeah. love that song so much. And I remember Rob singing it and I, I, it brought tears to my eyes because it was just so fucking beautiful. Mm. Um, and, and it kind of had its own personal connotations or meanings to me at that point as well. And um, I remember speaking to Glenn saying, that fucking album's a great sounding album, man. You know, mm. we did a fucking great job on that record. And we... We did do, and Tom Allen was was fantastic, fantastic person to work with. You know, mm. real a real delight to work with. Incredibly creative, incredibly good with vocals. Great with Rob's vocals, and just an all round great kind of. They used to call him like the the, the leader of the Scouts or something like that because they always <laughs> take the piss out of everyone. But he was he was a great leader of the a vibe a vibe. Mm. But he was also a great engineer in his own right. You know, he can mix and he can do the lot. So. You know, we were very hands, both, I was obviously the engineer predominantly, but then when we came to mix, you know, we both had our own ideas and we both worked together to, together on that as well. And, and of course, me and Tom went off and did Loverboy after that as well, mm. which was a, a big album. Not my cup of tea, really, but, um, you know, Tom was nice. I guess I got on with Tom. I think I'm lucky enough to get on with people quite well. I yeah. try, you know, and, and if I don't, then I kind of make it obvious that, I'm, that there's not, something's not right. What, what's interesting about when you say, you know, especially with Tom, um, was that although people see like Defenders and, you know, Screaming for Vengeance and, and those albums as being classic metal albums, there was enormous amounts of experimentation within mm. those albums. You talk about like When the Night Comes Down, uh, that was what, that's a ballad essentially. Yeah. yeah. And there's loads of like sort of, wonderful vocal stuff going on there by rob oh, in the okay. background you know yeah. and then yeah. you think of something like um heavy duty where the mm. crowd is recorded and coming yeah, yeah. and that hadn't been done before they did yeah. just a lot of stuff that i done. as much as it was a standard r- r- metal record there was an enormous amount of experimentation on, oh, on, on God, that yeah. i don't think priests get enough uh, respect but sometimes like trying stuff like you know uh, yeah. and, and kind of pushing the boat out a little bit well, and Tom was a great exponent of that, um, of trying stuff like that. And, and I, I remember when the night comes down, there's there's a line in it. I can't remember exactly the line now, but I could point out, listen to it, where Rob sang something and just sounded so great. And we 
couldn't work out. We were like, what did you say? And he said, I don't really know what I said there. Said, sounds great though, doesn't it? And we go, yeah, it does, sounds great. So we're fuck it, let's just leave it in there and I'll put something around the outside and people can make up their own minds. And we go, great, let's do that. And then the, clapping, the, the thing on heavy duty, I remember that was um, applause from when they played at, at the US Festival, we had their tape, so we had all the applause and I keyed the applause so that it, it went with the vocals, went, so it opened at the same time. The applause opened with the, and it made the whole crowd yeah, so it made it super yeah. huge. Yeah. yeah. So that yeah. was, and the, the, one of the greatest things about that album, which me and Tom, I mean, this is kind of stupid that I didn't know better, but at that same time, Def Leppard were happening and they had the big fat snare drum sound and blah, blah, blah. Hmm. And, uh, you know, I should have known that basically they, what they'd done is trigger it via an AMS where you just put it in and you sample it and then you send the trigger and it opens and do Well, I didn't know that, but we wanted a big fat snare drum of some description. And when, when we were in Florida, there was a guy called Zeth who owned this studio. And he had this, and this is gospel truth, right? He had this thing which had a strobe light and the strobe light would flash like that. And he said, he said, I can make that strobe light flash. He said, and I can make that metal thing go up and down like that. And we went, me and Tom looked at each other and I said, we, we're like, why don't we put a fucking drumstick in that arm and put a snare drum underneath it and see what it sounds like. <laughs> so we sent this thing out and they, and we put a glove on it as well. So yeah. it's very heavy metal, <laughs> heavy metal glove. We put a snare drum there and we just went. <laughs> so we tuned the snare drum, mic'd it up, got it how we wanted it. And it went, <laughs> but if it went too fast, it would go all fucked up. And we, had, we had to run it back and forth. So we had to jigger it around. And what we did is we kept doing this till we got the snare drum. And then we sunk that snare drum in with the other snare, the main snare drum, just to give it a different texture. Hmm. But it was great. You know, it was the metal arm. It was like, no, yeah. one, it was like stupid. It was kind of like um, when he did British Steel and, and he had the tray of cutlery and stuff. And he was yeah. Yeah, it's a similar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. I mean, I, I promised. I promised I wouldn't do any this on uh, when I ever did these podcasts. But I am, you know, there's a part of me that, as a fan in my heart sings to hear this type of stuff because this is the magic. This is the the things in the sounds behind the albums. That, that, do you yeah. remember recording one of my personal favorites of Judas Priest is the song The Sentinel. Yes, it was the first time I ever heard, you know, six and seven part solos and stuff. Yeah. Um, do you remember the recording of, of the Sentinel? Do you remember that whole process not, at all? Not really, no, not really. That's another one I don't really I remember it because it's such yeah. a great song, but yeah. I don't remember the ins and outs of it. Or you know, and there's certain moments of certain songs that I, I you know that I remember because there was so much of them. So like in in the beginning of Love Bites, where you hear that thing, it was that that was basically we had a microphone taped to a, an axe, a steel, a, a big axe, which we dragged <laughs> along the, the stone outside. And, it went <laughs> and then we keyed it to the hi-hat and fucked it up a bit and made it go like that. And that became something everybody was waiting for that bit. <laughs> and Tom, and, and Tom was something that I wasn't involved in, of course, was on another thing coming where Tom does the, the drum for <laughs> What he did there was he, he tuned it, he got the drums and he, he recorded it down, cut the tape so it failed in the right spot, did it like eight times and then put all those drums together and then flew them in by hand. So you, that's why we used to all do that by then. But you know, he was good at it and, and you just hit the tape, you've got to hit the play button at the right moment and it all just drops in and when it drops in, you go, yeah, he'll drop <laughs> you win. And that's well, how that sound happened. Continuing with the, the, some of the, this is your life type of thing. 
we, we leads on to a, a, a nice thing where we're talking about the priest connection in a sec with yeah. ugly kid joe's america's least wanted yeah and that's uh, where uh, we've got some mutual friends on that album with crane yeah. and um do you, do you remember the process of recording that album then oh, do you God. remember being yeah. approached oh, God. <laughs> he's like oh God, yeah. how could you not how could you not because i was in i was in california at the time working mm. with the electric love hogs and tommy lee and i were producing electric love hogs together and that was interesting. And um, Ugly Kid Joe were around. I was also did a, I was mixing some other album. And then um, obviously, you know, I had everything about you was all over the TV. Like mm. it was huge. And everybody was watching it. And, you know, you could see that there was something going on there. Mm. Um, and I, I was working with Electric Levels. And then I was mixing a, a band called Sh uh, Shooting Gallery. Yeah. Um, and Wick came down with Klaus and they they had a trick question for me. And I'm, I'm still not 100% sure what the trick question was, but they asked me about sin after sin. And I said to them, uh, I said, it was great making sin after sin, but it's pretty, it's not the greatest sounding record. Cause I didn't think it was yet. Funnily enough, Tom was talking to me about Tom Allen the other day, about it. he goes, ah, it sounds really good. He says, do you, he says, do you remember the cuckoo? I was like, what fucking cuckoo? He says, listen, between this song and this song, turn it up loud. And I turned it up loud and, Way back in my memory, I do have a memory of it. There's a cuckoo goes cuckoo between two songs. <laughs> right in between. I'm not saying what two songs they are. It's on sin after sin between two <laughs> songs. Anyway, so um, I just said, yeah, it wasn't a great sounding record. And they were, I think that was the trick question. So then we got to start that process. And I went to uh, Santa Barbara, or La Vista or whatever. I just finished um, another album in New York with a band called The Front. And I came down to do that. And when I got to the hotel, there was a big fuck off bag, a big plastic bag waiting for me on the reception. He said, oh, you Mr. Dodson? Oh, yeah, this is for you. So I go, great. And I open it up and it's like T-shirts and paddling gear and, and, and balloons and all stuff for water sports, you know, water sports stuff and lilos and all shit. And it's just that had a letter on it. It was from the A&R guy. And he said, this is all the outboard gear you'll need for this record. I thought like, that was a good attitude. So that was nice. So, and then we went into rehearsal, pre-production. And, and with them guys, there was a little bit of pre-production, nothing massive. And then we went to my favourite studio, Devonshire, in, in North Hollywood, that my friend um, Kelly Creamer, uh, Kelly Creamer, I thought that was her maiden name, of Linear Management. She she ran that place. She was, she was fucking great. And um, she looks after me now too. And so... We went there and um, and we recorded it all there and it was a great. We had a little backroom studio out the back where you could get it cheap and do all the overdubs. And um, we went in there and the boys, of course, were at that time. That was the time when the, the Rodney King incident happened in Los Angeles. Yeah, in the stuff. yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was kind of scary. And the boys went out one day and there were bullet, you know, there was a lot of shit going on. They shouldn't have been out really. And there were bullet holes in the walls of the studio where fucking shit had been going on. So it was a dangerous time. Um, and, uh, and I remember they, they bought enough cans of Budweiser, drank enough cans of Budweiser to fill up a whole window like that. And then they sprayed Ugly Kid Joe over it and, and stuff like that. They, just had, you know, they were just like crazy kids, you know. They, yeah, you know, yeah. They were having the best time doing this and doing that. And we just, we just got on with it and, and made the record. And then when Wit actually sung Cats in the Cradle, he was in a, in a little booth singing it. And Klaus was in the same booth playing acoustic guitar. And that was the vocal we kept because it, he never got near it again. And I was like, that vocal was so great. We never yeah. got near it again. So it had guitar leakage on it and everything, but we made it all work. Mm. It's crazy. So you know, I, I, 
I, I when I, I remember picking buying that album after seeing the, the um, everything about you and stuff like that. So I yeah. go and buy this album, and then some, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later, end up working with them, going out on tour with them and stuff. And, and you know, I, I'm sure that, you know, that Wit's love for Judas Priest, you know, he very much became a fanboy because of, like, you know, you simply working on Sin After Sin and Defenders and stuff yeah. would have bought you an enormous amount of currency with, with, with Wit to do that. Did you, th- yeah. That album was kind of nominated for awards as well. How did it... How do you feel about awards and stuff like that? Did you kind of did you did you like them? Did you really kind of pay much attention? Did you kind of oh, how what's your thoughts on awards and things like that? I always I've always dreamt what it would be like to actually win an award. You know, to actually be able to go up and and, and receive an award. And I often mm. you know I <laughs> go through it in my brain. And I, and um, you know, but somebody said to me, it's like it's a weird thing awards you know because it's like well who's the people the people that are making the awards do they really know do they not know i mean it's i think it's nice for me it's really special when someone says that like i met a guy a while ago and he said that the that album changed his life of course then he says but i was only 10 but (laughs) well okay okay. (laughs) back up in compliments (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but it had an effect, you know, and also mm. the fact that, that Cats in the Cradle was, was a, also part of a TV campaign during the IRA problems um, where mm. they were it tried to help with peace. So when these songs, and I've met a lot of people who have said this to me, moreover than, than, than an award or anything like that, when people say, well, that, I love that song, did you do that record, that changed my life, that makes me feel amazing. That makes me feel great. No, normally I would use that as a coder at the very end, but there's still some stuff I want to talk about. I'm here to tell you, Mark, that I have many of your records here and they were formative in me as a person and as a musician and certainly the life that I lead as, as tour manager and, 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 and tech and all that type of thing. It was because of the albums that you made, sir. And That's I amazing. will speak for a lot. If I will speak for the Metal Fraternity. There are an enormous amount of people that um, maybe didn't even know your name, but you most definitely knew your work, sir. You yeah. have you have honestly been a, a pivotal thing in, in, in those people's lives, and certainly in bands' lives. You have created, with the work you've done, tons of bands, tons and hundreds of thousands of bands as well. And, you know, normally I'd end the podcast with this and, and say thank you, but there's still stuff that we need to cover. But... <laughs> I'm here to tell you that, yeah, thank you. Thank you for the, for, for the for that times you put in because probably the one of the things that doesn't get talked about is that it can be slightly lonely and slightly difficult traveling the world all the time and not knowing a lot of people, you know, spending time with your family gets, gets put to the side sometimes and yeah. it can be quite a challenging thing to do. Anybody that's toured for any length of time will tell you that, that it has its effect. It has yeah. its effect to you, but, but, but thank you for, for doing that. I suppose moving kind of, what was it like as well? I think it, Rob Halford's on um, on that album as well. Yeah, got Devil. Yeah, how, how did that kind of come about? Was that with suggesting it, or did um, you suggest it? Um, I can't remember how it got suggested, but I got hold of Rob. I think I said, "Well, what, let's, let me call because I've got Glenn to play on a Nixon's album as well. Right, I yeah. With a band called the Nixons, and I spoke to Glenn, and I was like, and they said. You can't get you can you get Glenn Tipton to play on this album? And I said, I'd try. So I called him up and back then we used to send DATs or whatever the A DATs. Yeah, A DATs. Yeah. Sent, sent him an A DAT and he sent back the solo. And I was like, whoa, they were like, damn man, 
Clint, Clint Phipps. And I'm like, yeah. And I was like, I was lucky, you know, to have such a great friend that would do something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when it came to Rob doing it, I got hold of him and he, he said to me, um, what did he say? He got the name wrong. He didn't call him Ugly Kid Joe. He called him Ugly Joe Kid. That's what. Yeah, I can sing on Ugly Joe Kid's record. That's fine. Don't mind a lot to do that. And he came down and we went out to eat and we had a curry and stuff. And he, he says, I'm still hungry. I'm still hungry. I said, well, that, that's why we're here to have dinner. And he's like, no, I mean hungry musically. So we went back to the studio and we got him singing. But Wick got very, in, got very involved in that. And Wick's going, oh, no, do something there and try something there and try something yeah. there. And Rob was like, well, I'll do that. And he was like, God damn, devil. Wick's basically <laughs> like, fucking yes. Yeah. Uh, so that was a great instance of where I was like, you want this. You love him. You, you're... Go yeah. for it, you know what yeah. I mean? I was, yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. no, he can't sing that. That's not my idea. I don't, yeah. I don't give a fuck. If someone's got an idea and it's good, that's mm. fucking fine by me. And if I've got an idea and it's shit, and everybody agrees it's shit, that's fine by me too. <laughs> no, so then, kind of great ideas all the time. You had like sort of, you know, go, then we go, I'm trying to go through somewhat chronologically speaking. You get like to the sort of 93 and working with the almighty. Yeah. on Power Tripping, which was a, yeah. a really important record for them. You know, oh, some would say that that was the record that they completely broke through with as well, you know, and there must have been some pride when you work with an album or work with an artist and it's their album that kind of makes them like uh, America's Least Wanted and stuff like yeah. that. Yeah, that's, yeah. Their, that's still their biggest selling album. You know, that must yeah. be incredibly, you know, it must have a real sense of pride that you were involved in that, certainly yeah. with the almighty. And then what, what I found most fascinating was that you... Um, was the Wild Hearts? You did like three albums with with the Wild Hearts. That yeah. must have been a fantastic relationship. Then you had with 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 them and Ginger yeah, and stuff. They're, you know, they're 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 fucking. I don't know what you'd call them. <laughs> <laughs> One thing about the Wild Hearts is, that, and I never quite got. Well, I kind of do know why they're not as big as they should have been, because you know Ginger is, is such an a, a, a you know unpredictable character. Hmm. That's a very nice way of putting it. Um, and when absolutely incredibly talented person i mean ridiculously talented he would write a seven minute song and he knew every fucking note and if someone in rehearsal hit the wrong note he'd say that's meant to be an f sharp not not just f or whatever and i'd be like they go oh you know he said you know on the third chorus of the double die you played on that bar there so that's not right and i go how the fuck does he know that yeah. um and he could do that and he was great with vocals great songwriter great everything but, you know, his own worst enemy in a lot of ways. But when they played and they rocked, they were fucking great. And those albums I did with them were brilliant, you know, and songs songs, songs like Sucker Punch, etc., which was my first introduction to them. Mm. And when I did that, I, I remember, because, again, they're a kind of band you don't fuck with their arrangements, but on Sucker Punch, I did cut a part of it in half. I said, that goes on for too long. Let's try this. And they just went... Oh yeah, it's much better like that, and that that kind of endeared me to them. Mm. And then we got on great. So we, for a while, and then I think you know, like with with Ginger, he usually falls out with people. I mean, for, we started working with them. He had a fight with CJ. The first thing they did was have a fight, literally, on the floor in the studio and up in in the um in the dining room of the studio. And and it was like watching two girls having a fight, really. <laughs> so I just sat and let them get on with it. I was like, fuck it, get on with it. You know, and they did, and then. You know, then he kicked CJ out of the band. It was a bad vibe there, but I think CJ's back in the band now. CJ's a cool guy. The drummer, the drummer Richie, great drummer. Danny, the bass player, fucking great blokes. You know what I mean? Really, yeah. really lovely blokes. And Ginger is a fucking 
he's incredible, but he, yeah. he's it's a shame he hasn't been all that he could have been because he could have been a huge, huge star. Yeah, he's he's, he's had some issues. They're fairly well documented. He's very open about about some of the issues he, he's had as well. Like, but I think you know some of the the great people and and those people that maybe some would say he's a genius. You know, certainly yeah. the most creative people. Unfortunately, you know, sometimes have some issues. You know, and that's that's the way the way way it can be sometimes. And then. Yeah. You know, and and it's a shame, but I I agree that maybe never never were as great as as, as they should have been. Did you listen to other? You, know, you must have been devouring music through this whole process where you would listen to albums. Did you kind of have um, producers that you admired what you'd heard, maybe not even even met, but you picked up the records and gone, that record sounds outstanding. You know, I wonder how they got that. Did you have <laughs> records like that that kind of really influenced you as well? Um. Yeah, I, you know, I, I try to separate myself a little bit from the music and the production in a way. So I, the first thing I do is, if when I hear something, I, I listen to the song. Mm. I'm not too, you know, and I remember talking to John Punter about this. He said, oh, don't you listen to the sound? And I go, no, I listen to the song. Oh, I listen to the sound. So it, it wasn't my first point of call when listening to something. I, my first point of call would be, oh, this is a great song. I love this song, you know, um, and, and it, it sounds amazing. I think that... that some of the work that um, uh, Mr. Jimmy did, J Jimmy Miller with, with the Stones was outstanding. Mm. You know, I can, you can hear it and you can feel it more than anything. Um, and feeling it's great, feeling that. And, and, and Mutt Lang, you have to say, uh, when he, he was doing certain things, was very innovational and did, mm. did amazing work. And also the guy that's now dead, who I did meet, unfortunately, he's dead now. Um, who did a, used to do Lover Boy before we did, and then went on to do Bon Jovi's records. Now I'm not a Bon Jovi fan, and he did Aerosmith as well. Oh, what was his fucking name? Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant producer. <clears throat> he was working with Bob Rock a lot back in the day. Mm. Oh, I can't remember his name. He died now. I think he died of um, too much cocaine, unfortunately, which is right. odd because I never thought of him as being that kind of guy. But his work, I thought, was was exceptionally good as mm. well. And, uh, uh, yeah, I'm not really, I'm more of a song person. I don't go around going, oh, he's the great. I mean, people go, oh, this guy's the greatest. We worked with Bill Simsic. Bill Simsic, actually, we used Bill Simsic's studio in, in Florida to mix Defenders of the Faith. So Bill Simsic obviously did, when when he did Hotel California, that was the kind of album where we went, wow, that's a great really album. Really kind of, yeah, yeah. yeah. Was, I'm, I'm, Tom I'm, Petty, yeah. Tom yeah. Petty was, 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 you know, Shelley X and Jimmy Iovine. Mm. I was like, wow, that was a seminal point for me. I was like, that's a great sounding record. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting yeah. that you that you say you you, you kind of it's how you're able to separate the, the the production and the song, and you're able to kind of separate that because that's the the thing that musicians sometimes have a problem with. Like, so if you're a guitar player, when you listen to a song, you'll 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 mainly only hear the guitar, or if you're a drummer, you'll. It's mm -hmm. nice that you can just go. You know what? If it's a good song, I'm in. Um, you know, I don't sit. There, you don't sit there going, "Well, that's a great snare sound," or "That's a bad." Yeah cymbal crash sound or whatever it may be you know you just see the whole thing as, as a song and i think the, the truly wonderful producers just see the songs you know and and and, and help them come come into life so continuing yeah. on in our somewhat this is your life some of the albums that i think that a lot of people listening were so we have um, glenn tipton's uh, baptism of fire yeah. um and you know clearly you and glenn great friends because that's a that's a really interesting album because it's not it's not full on metal. I mean, and you've got like stones covers. Yeah. Um, and, and I wanted to ask you about, you bring up the stones and kind of you know, the productions that they had. When you do like painted, not exactly the same as, uh, as the stones version. It's, it's heavied up and, you know, tipped yeah. if you will. 
And then, so when you approach someone else's song and you produce that, you go back to the old production and go, I'm going to try and distance myself from that, or there's things that I want to do that they did, or do you just approach it like a totally different song? Um, I don't, uh, let me think about this. I, um, with that, with the, well, obviously Cats and the Crows is a good example of that. Well, mm. uh, I would make sure there wasn't anything we were missing. And the, the tempo of the song is very important because if you get a song too fast or too slow, you're losing something very integral to its mm. original reason that it was successful. So um, with Cats and the Cradle, the only thing I did with that, I did change the arrangement because I doubled the chorus at the end. But that's all I did. I just, you know, the rest of it was, was pretty much what it was. And there's, there's bits in that, the original, uh, there's like a bridge section that Klaus played on guitar and it never quite was the same as the way they did it but I'd, I like the way we did it it, it has to be different has to be different and with with the Glenn song again oddly enough that was a, a, a mix that I did with you know like just a rough mix and we we never got near it again we put it in the computer we did this we did that but we never got near it again um and it, uh, you know and, and Glenn kind of arranged it you know Glenn's a great arranger Glenn knows exactly mm. what he's doing so there's nothing for me to do there my job was just to try and... Glenn had come to see me in America where I was well he hadn't come to see me he was in America and we hooked up and I was doing something rather and he was talking to me about the album and you know what where he was at with it and who he had on it and what he wanted to do with it and stuff like that and so, so uh, you know he said to me do you want to be involved and I was like yeah absolutely and I then you know we then tried to get different people to come and play on it. And Shannon Larkin came and did a, a lot of yeah. drums on that album. And, um, and oddly enough, you know, funnily enough, the, the guy that plays a lot of bass on that, a guy called CJ, he was the assistant engineer, but he could play bass like a motherfucker. <laughs> Glenn heard him playing bass and he goes, well, why don't you have a go? CJ yeah. probably said, I'll have a go at that. And he played it and Glenn was like, that's fucking great. Because Glenn liked to have it the way he wanted it. You know, he wanted the drums to be, he didn't want it to be too far away from what he had in his mind so like mm. shannon was great perfectly great drummer for glenn great drummer. Yeah. solid and fucking you know knew exactly what he was doing. we had yeah. robert trujillo came down and played a bit of bass on it you know and and, and i think glenn liked the fact that i knew all these people in a that mm. in la to come down and try different things and we had a couple of people that came down that were in particularly successful bands at that time and, and they disappointed so i won't mention names yeah, but sure. they disappointed greatly when you got them in the studio and they, mm. they went to do something but you go oh then we had billy sheehan do a bass on bass once yeah. and that was great i loved him i always loved his bass playing so yeah um it was more a matter of again pulling on all the people and and then and then when it came to mix we went to a lot of different studios because you know we then had a very finely tuned ear and he didn't want to take the record home and hear it after we'd mix it and go, it sounds like shit. So we went to a few different studios until we found one that, and it ended up being Battery Studios in North London, mm -hmm. that was a very flat sounding room where the mixed results we got were, were exactly what Glenn was looking for. Had we mixed it in, in Devonshire, um, in the mix room there where, you know, everything was mixed from Aussie to, to uh, Weather Report, it would have probably sounded even better because an electric love was that, that 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 was just a room and again this was something that people don't fully understand but the room has a massive impact on the way the mix is sound because yeah. if you get a room that's too lively the mix sounds too lively you take it elsewhere and it sounds flat mm. um and you know and so i work i work with a master and engineer called greg calby at sterling sound and greg's 
to my mind, the greatest mastering engineer in the world. He's fucking worked with everybody, you know, from David Bowie to Stones to the Beatles to everybody to the latest Bob Dylan album. And, and I'm very fortunate because I get to send mixes to him. And because we are great, we've been great friends since I went there about well, 30 years ago, whatever, um, to have him master, we've been friends ever since. And I can send him my mixes and I say, what's the story here? Because I can do a mix at home now because of mm. technology, you know, which is, yeah. I don't mind, you know, I'm not, and, and I know that Calby transfers it to tape before he masters it. So it keeps a bit of that mystery analog vibe in there, but I can send him mixes and he'll say, oh, you're missing the middle or you're missing the bottom end, or this is a bit weird, or that sounds a bit strange there. And I can go back and correct it. Now, now I've finally got my room tuned, this room that I'm sitting in here, so that I can do a mix in here. And I, and I know whether, it, you know, I listen to everything in here. So I've got a good point of reference to what everybody else is doing. So I'll go and listen to the Foo Fighters in here, for example, or, or whoever, just to hear what they're doing and see what, so I get a good point of reference. So with um, Baptism of Fire, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's an interesting album. And Glenn, I spoke to, when last time I spoke to Glenn, in fact, he said to me, you know, that was a fucking good record we made there. And I'm glad, good, I'm glad you really like it, you know. And, um, and it, it was a very different thing for Glenn to do. Mm. And because Glenn always thought he was a singer. <laughs> <laughs> Bless his heart. Um, um, and yeah, I'm, we love doing it, you know, and a lot of people got involved and it was great, you know. Because there was like, the, there's, there's elements of the blues in there as well and going back to his days and like, it's, it's quite a diverse record and what a, mm. what a beautiful thing that is because that's his solo record and, you know, and at the time when I came out, there was a lot of people waiting to hear that record as well. He had a lot of people waiting to hear it. But what a beautiful thing that, you know, you meet him in the 70s, you work with him on various projects and he turns to you and says, you know, can you work on that album? That's such a, that's a massive nod for you. You know what I mean? That yeah. must be a, a lot, a real feather in your cap for someone who has become your friend, but also respects you as, as your ability as a, as a producer. That must yeah. have been quite a special moment that like, you know, it, you know, and, and I'm sure it was never, it was, a lot of it was unsaid, but I'm sure it must've felt like a special moment for, for you to work on that record. Absolutely. You know? Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Cause it, uh, um, We've remained close throughout, you know, all this time. We still talk, you know, through here and there. We, we probably speak once every two or three months. Um, <coughs> and um, he's been very important in my career in, in a lot of ways, as has Kenny Laguna. So, you know, and, and I love him dearly, Glenn. I think he's an incredibly, incredibly talented bloke. He's, he's great fun to be around always. You know, he's as funny as all hell. And, and we've had some, me and him have had some great, great times together. Yeah, he, he's been very instrumental in my life in lots of different ways, mm. lots of different ways. So, you know, I, I, I love him to pieces and, you know, I wish we could spend more time together maybe mm. and do some more work together at some point. Maybe we will. I just, you know, I feel that, me personally, I feel, I have this issue with anything that's done on the grid as they call it and i think they call it on the grid i have a real issue with stuff that's done to a click and right. then everything is put exactly on that click mm. and i had this chat with somebody the other day and this is very important to me they said oh well back in the day the jackson five used to put down a shaker and then write a song around it and i go okay but they they weren't putting everything exactly in time with the shaker because you couldn't, you, you'd never computer to do that. So there was a, a sway within the 
play the movement of the music. There was always a sway within it. Now, when you get a band in the studio like The Who, or Bow Wow Wow, or, or, or Ugly Kid Joe, or anybody you care to mention, really, there's a moment when the members of the band that are laying down the track hit a pocket. And you know this as well as anybody else, I'm sure. But when they hit that pocket, as I said earlier, it sounds better. And there's a sound that happens. Now, that's a magical moment, right? Now, you could put a click on that and it won't be anywhere near the fucking click. But who gives a shit? So what, what, what are you doing when you put everything on a click? I'm not saying you can't make records like that. Obviously, you can because they do. But what you're doing, the only human element that is left on that record is the vocal. Because everything else is perfectly in time. So you, the character that the drummer had, or the bass player, or the guitar player, like when I said Rocky made a mistake and said, leave it in, I can't make that mistake again. That's mm. fucking magical. If you listen to some Bowie records, you can hear him, he comes in early, comes in at the wrong point. If you listen to Angie closely enough, you can hear Jagger's guide vocal in the background. I mean, that's fucking gorgeous, that sort of stuff. <laughs> Yeah. And, and people, people have eradicated that. So what's the point of having a band when it's, it's, like, it's like having a football team and taking out Mo Salah and go, you know, you go, well, let's replace Mo Salah with a machine on the right wing. It's just bollocks, you know. It, don't comes up, it does come up a lot with the producers and, and people that I work with that record music is that be, uh, to the uninitiated, when you're recording music, it's a, it's a conversation with the musicians that are having a conversation. Yeah. And like in a real life conversation, there's a push and a pull when someone yeah. talks a little bit over each other, and that pushing the pull of it, that's the character of the band. And if you yeah. put it to a track, a click track, you, you, you mean that this person's talking for this long, then they stop, then this person talks, and it becomes completely robotic and takes all the identity out of it. You know, uh, I one of the newer examples I can think about that is where Rick Rubin worked with Metallica, and he said he removed the click track. He was like, no, 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 no. We're, we're going to remove that because I want to hear the drums again. I want to hear that relationship like Lars and, and, and James have yeah. and that interplay and that kind of speeding up and slowing down because music that that happens that you know, people can play ahead and behind the beats to those people who don't play musical instruments they can play a bit behind the beats and ahead of the beats and and it's part of their sound it becomes yeah. part of their thing and like you say some of the glorious moments are are the mistakes the things yeah. that, that didn't work where someone's overran or played the wrong thing because it's personality, and the more you, the more digitally you make it, and the more you put clicks and rules and walls and barriers and fences in the way, it strips down all that personality out of a record. You know, my favourite records are the ones that you can hear, like you say, uh, a guide track or something like that, or you can hear someone make a noise that shouldn't be there. These yeah. aren't mistakes. These are beautiful moments that can never be re replicated. So why wouldn't you want to keep them on a record? And now. A lot of bands are chasing that now, where they're like, we, want our, 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 we don't want it to be Pro Tools to death. We want it, we, we're chasing that spontaneity in, in, in a room sound. And that's why, like, you know, the room sound that you talk about is incredibly important. That comes up a lot. All these famous sure. rooms that exist around the world, yeah. they're known because of their, the texture that they give to the sound. And you can't get that from a plug-in or something like that. It just, you, you can't get close to that. There's nothing beats that, like I no. say, that interplay. So, you know, do, do modern production now, all the best stuff remembers that. Uh, it, it, it has all the best stuff of the digital side of it, the convenience of it. Yep, but it also yep. remembers that and, and tries to, you know, I remember hearing uh, when Ruben, for example, records Johnny Cash and knows not, you don't fuck with Johnny Cash's vocals. You don't try and tidy it up. 
you know, you no. don't do that. You let him be Johnny Cash, and that's why you get a beautiful vocal line. Yeah. So now, what are you? What are you kind of as we wind down? I'll kind of let you go. I know you're very busy. Um, what are you kind of working on now? What's the next things for you? And what are you listening to at the moment as well? Um, I listen to everything. First off, I listen to everything. I, my kids are always listening to. My daughter Molly, she listens to a lot of. Um, she's she's great with music. She loves a lot of jazz modern jazz stuff and, and old jazz as well so i'm always interested in hearing what she's listening to my son tommy plays a lot of uh rap and i'm i'm like i said to him rap is music that comes from the ghetto i don't like it i like heavy metal <laughs> <laughs> and he just looks at me and says you're sad dad fuck off <laughs> <laughs> but um but he plays a lot of that stuff, which I don't really, I, I try to get, but I, occasionally I hear a little bit say, oh, that's clever, or that's cool, or that's good, or that's nice. So I'm always listening to them because they're always inundating me, and my wife is continually playing music of all sorts. So she, her favourite one now is um, Biffy Clyro. I call him Cliff Byro, because <laughs> um, I remember it easier that way. That's a good <laughs> name for me. Um, so, yeah, and, and as far as what I've been working on, um, I've, I'm just finishing off the new Ugly Kid Joe album, mm. which we recorded in um, El Paso, and that had a great sounding room. And again, there's no click, you know, there's no mm. click. It's the boys playing, and and that's gonna. I'm looking really looking forward to hearing, you know, hearing that finished, mastered, and, and it coming out. Mm. And um, it's there, and it's like a, it's like it's waiting to be born and come out into the world. And like Wit says, and I'm sure you you probably heard him say. Um, that hunger is the greatest spice. And I get that. And so waiting for this album is kind of equated to that phrase in my mind. Huh? You're, 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 kind of, you're kind of sitting in that waiting room of the maternity lounge, waiting for, yeah. you, to go, waiting for you to go, yeah, yeah. Mr. Dodson, it's, it's a boy. And it's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and all the yeah. band are there as well, like with the yeah. face pressed up against the glass. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I want to smoke my cigar, man. <laughs> And what a great way to, you know, what a great way to end that. Like, you still, it's very clear you're still hugely passionate about what you do. And I, I think that's fabulous that, you know, so many years and you still, you're still that wonderful. And, you know, you've got that still, it, that gleam in your eye of being excited about yeah. music. And, and I think that's a it beautiful thing. Me. It does excite me. And it's funny because when people get me, I don't talk about it very often, but when occasionally I bump into people and they go, well, you did that, or you did that. Like my kid, Tommy, he's boxing, right? Big time, loves boxing. And yeah. then when I went down there the other day, Tommy had spoken to one of the trainers. He said, oh, I didn't realise you did uh, this and did that. I said, yeah, I did that. He said, oh, fucking hell, man, that's great. And I <laughs> felt myself lift and feel like 20 years old again, you know? I might be and, cool, and what I'd, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I would, what I'd love to find in this country is, or any country, really, is, uh, you know, young bands... Mm. doing that that i don't i don't hear it there must be a, a great i've seen a couple of kids that are really good mm. and i go well that there's one kid i've seen that's really good a great voice great guitar player but he's on his own and i'm not sure i don't want to be in control of everything you know i'd, I'd mm. love to see a band like in their late teens early 20s that can play and they've got a fucking a fuck you attitude and know but and they could do it because that's the kind of band i'd like to work with that's what mm. i want to do something like that mm. because you i could bring them into uh, sonically i can make them sound great mm. and 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 it, that they will be fresh and they will be new i want to hear something like that well, with a bit of a like a young led zeppelin or something do you wow. know what i mean i'm asking yeah. for asking for the world yeah you're not asking much like <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. 
But you just you're asking for you know someone like you say with a with a, a belief in themselves, and it's yeah. like fuck everybody else. This is this is what we want to do, and and go yeah. and do it like a young suicidal tendencies would do. Yeah. You know, would come along and like listen. We're just going to do this music, and whatever you want to call this music is fine. But we're going to do this and and let that out. Like so, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's that. If you you've given more than enough advice for 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 the young band out there, that you've got to really do something that you believe in. You've got to really do something that you know just get on with what you believe to be a good song or a good album or a good sound and just you know that's what most producers are looking for because it's exciting yeah. it's exciting to work with those bands listen you know i'm this has been fabulous this has been fabulous mark I, you know what a Thank window you very into, much. i've enjoyed it what a window into a world we could we're, we're more than likely going to have to have mark on again and um, we'll do some kind of crazy listen along with wit and mark to the new album or something like that we'll do something like that um, it's it's been a privilege and, and an honour, sir. Um, very nice thank you very much for your time. I'm very grateful. Um, uh, ladies and gentlemen, Mark Dobson. Thank, thank you very, very much, much, sir. Thank you, sir. And there you go, uh, Mark Dobson. There, like I said, I, I, I way beyond expectations. I was looking forward to speaking to Mark, and I knew it'd be great, and it was. But certainly, going all the way back to to working at the Who Studios and and things like that, and artists with that, we it was proper deep dive. Even though we only spoke for like an hour and a half or so we'll definitely get mark back on the show because there's so much to talk about he's he's we've still working now still still producing albums now working within the business so we're definitely going to do some kind of listen along i think it'd be fun to do and um, we talked before the podcast we talked afterwards for, for quite a while just about music in general uh superb guest and i think you'll agree superb sort of stories and and i hope the energy he had and the enthusiasm he had for the business really come comes across on the show once again and um, thanks for listening i appreciate the shares i appreciate people talk to other people about the show and getting the word out there and once again even with all this stuff going on i will see you at a show